Ladies and gentlemen of the Real Vision community, welcome to 2021 with, uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously we're off to a good start. Um, I mean, when people storm the Capitol building at the beginning of the year, you know everything's gonna go well. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> but, uh, you know, doing a quick video with uh, Mr. Fadul and uh, going over several updates we have and gonna specifically show how they impact markets, um, hopefully with commodities, clean energy, uh, indices as a whole, and just kind of what we're looking at. And so I think there's been several developments, obviously with the Georgia runoff that we had, and uh, just wanted to give some clarity to that because I think there's a little bit of ambiguity about what exactly it means and how it actually went down. Because I think a couple months ago, John and I had a talk and John, you were pretty, uh, I don't wanna say certain, but you said there was a higher probability that both seats in Georgia would go to Republicans and that at the very least, at least one would and Republicans would be able to keep the Senate. That kind of flipped on its head uh, because of kind of some developments uh, with, uh, with McConnell and Trump and <coughs> kind of the whole stimulus check thing. So why don't you just kind of give us a little bit of a breakdown of, of that situation? I just, I think everyone can just agree that I think the hope that 2021 was going to be better than 2020 just very clearly, very clearly went out the window. <laughs> um, I wouldn't necessarily say my predictions were wrong. Um, like I think I said several months ago when we did this um, talk originally, I said, there's a good chance the Congress is going to be divided and that for the runoff, the Republicans look like they were the stronger candidates and more likely to win. I think until about three weeks ago, I think that was true. Um, but when this sort of baby stimulus was being pushed through the Congress and uh, McConnell barely agreed to $600 checks per person, yeah. um, Trump just jumped into the breach and said, $600 isn't enough. We want $2,000. That's bad um, because it allows the Democrats to basically say, okay, we'll support this and add nothing else to it, just $2,000 checks. And then he kind of pushed the decision into McConnell's court and McConnell already said that he wasn't going to do it. And so instead of killing it up front, he attached it with a whole bunch of other poison pills that Republican, that Democrats wouldn't vote on. And so killed it in the Senate. Why did, why did McConnell not want the $2,000 stimulus checks? Um, so McConnell, is part of the Republican old guard. So very fiscally hawkish, doesn't want to spend more than what the government brings in unless it feels like it's necessary. Um, one of those exceptions was the tax cuts because everyone was just assuming that Obamacare would reform would happen and that's where the money would be made up. Uh, but that didn't happen. And so the deficit blew up to a trillion dollars a year. Um, but I think McConnell rightly assumed that if he won at least one of the seats in Georgia, the Republicans would need to have a precedent set before taking back the Senate that we're going to be fiscally hawkish and we're not going to let Biden get any of what he wants through. Um, the problem is, is that the one thing that he didn't let through, which is the $2,000 checks was broadly popular. And so a lot of independents who voted for Trump and the Republicans in Georgia um, in November essentially defected and voted for Biden. And a lot of Republicans that only vote for Trump uh, in the in the Georgia election in November, didn't show up 
uh, yesterday. And so as a result, Democratic turnout was almost exactly 100% of what it was on November 4th, while uh, Republican turnout was only 90% of what turnout was on November 4th. And considering that the gap between the Republican and Democratic candidates in Georgia, I think was less than combined 20,000 votes. If Republicans had just shown up in at 95% or 97% turnout, they would have clinched it. And so this was a surprisingly tough Senate competition, uh, but uh, not supporting the $2,000 checks probably cost them it. Yeah. And I think that's key, especially for markets, the $2,000 checks in comparison to the $600 checks, because the, especially with everyone putting, putting that amount of money into markets and stuff like that, especially with uh, your, your different uh, vanity stocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think, I think that difference, you know, would, would have provided a lot of upside for that. Uh, I mean, at the $600, obviously there's a huge positive for that for markets, but uh, how do you, how do you kind of see, uh, let's just say stimulus checks and stimulus as we move forward? Cause now we have basically a Democrat majority in the Senate, correct? So Senate house and, uh, and um, so President, this is where when we start like giving prognoses for what could happen, um, essentially the Senate is tied 50 50. So 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. Um, That's why I wouldn't call this a blue tide, a blue wave, rather. I'd probably call it a blue tide. Um, So a tide will increase sea level by the shore by maybe a foot. And so it's definitive and it's consequential, but it's not earth shattering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a result for very contentious issues, like, um, presidential cabinet picks, you only need 51 votes to get that through Kamala Harris, who is the VP can be the tie breaking vote, making Democrats a 51, uh, 50 majority for things that are going to be party line votes and I think for some of the things they want to get through, I think that's good. Um, the problem is for budgets and for stimuluses and for big things that Biden really wants to push through in his first cup, first 100 days, he's still going to need 60 votes. Now, in the Senate, correct? In the Senate. Yeah. Uh, he just needs a simple majority in the House. Okay. Which Democrats have. They have 222 seats, I believe. Yeah, which is down 10 seats from what they were last cycle. Okay. Um, but a majority is still a majority and, a Repub- and Democrats have a history of voting party line on issues and very good at getting consensus. And so I don't think they're going to have a, I don't think they're going to have a ton of trouble getting the votes in the house. The Senate's the problem for them because even though they technically have a majority, there's still a chance for some defection and a lot of the things they want to get through require 60 votes. Now, the, the thing they could change that would allow them to bypass this is ending what's known as the filibuster. Um, the filibuster essentially raises the bar uh, of clearance in order to pass things. So everything from judges to executive appointments and budgets all used to be uh, a two-thirds majority vote, 60 votes or more. Um, during Obama's tenure, they, bl- they blew up the filibuster for presidential appointments and Supreme Court appointments. Um, this, 
Supreme Court appointments was, was McConnell. So this was more recent. But if they were to blow up the filibuster, this sort of 60 vote clearance for budgets, they could pass whatever they want. And you just, um, just for clarity, blow up, you mean just take it away? Essentially, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, the problem is, is that, and this is something that Democrats kind of learned the hard way, is that if they blew up the filibuster for presidential appointments for cabinet positions in the Supreme Court, um, as soon as Republicans win the Senate or the House or both, they get to take advantage of that too. Yeah. And so uh, Biden has said multiple times in the past couple of months, he won't blow up the filibuster because he knows even though he holds a slight majority in the House and now has a majority in the Senate, technically, um, it's very possible Republicans could win the Senate and the House again in 2022, and then they get to use all that against him. Yeah. And so I think it's very unlikely they blow up the filibuster for budgets and for taxation, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's out of the question. Okay. It depends if Democrats think there's enough uh, popularity behind them. Yeah. Enough support. If they feel like there's enough support for it, they'll blow it up. Yeah. Um, but if they feel like it's a stretch and they could backfire on them, they won't do it. Okay. They learned their lesson the hard way back yeah. in uh, 2012. Hmm. And so uh, when we're looking at Biden coming in, what are those things that he wants to do in the first hundred days? Uh, so the first hundred days, he's going to repeal most of the um, Trump executive orders. So a lot of the um, wall provisions, um, some of the uh, anti-abortion stuff is going to go yeah. out the window. So a lot of the, uh, the, the, the Muslim ban, the ban on certain countries visiting yeah. the United States based on terrorist activity, that's going to go away. What about um, like stuff like specifically related to markets? Uh, he can't do much stuff executively on markets. Okay. Um, but he could probably push through a stimulus, uh, between 1.5 and $2.5 trillion within the next six months. I think that's really possible. Okay. And what, what do you think that stimulus is going to break down to be? So this last skinny stimulus that Republicans basically authored, that's not going to be the template anymore. Um, mm -hmm. we're probably going to see a moratorium on evictions that's six to nine months extended. Um, so real estate has the potential to be buoyed for a bit longer and not correct. Um, you're going to have probably a continuation of $300 extra a week in unemployment assistance, not a reversion back to 600 okay. because I don't think there's political will anymore to push it back higher, Yeah, but there's enough Democrat support now for $300 that that's probably going to stay. That could be extended six to nine months. Sure. Um, infrastructure stimulus is a real possibilities, which is good for industrials. Yeah. Um, and I think renewable energy was going to do well regardless, even if it was going to be a split Congress, because there's still enough that Biden could change on the executive side regarding regulations that could disproportionately affect renewables. And, but now that he controls that con controls being the turn of phrase here, the Senate, he has the ability to actually push through uh, more subsidies and more tax incentives. Okay. So a restoration of, I think, electric car tax credits is, is I wouldn't say 50-50, but it's, it's closer to coin toss than it was three months ago. Yeah. 
why would I have said it wouldn't happen? I think it's, it could happen now. Yeah. Which would obviously be very good for Tesla because yeah. their electric car um, tax credits are expiring Okay. because they've reached um, over a million cars produced. And that's when your tax credit gets cut by a third. And yeah. then after five years, it gets reduced to nothing. Yeah. Um, if Tesla could get those tax credits back without a phase out, mm-hmm. then Tesla has the possibility to go higher. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Tesla's a great good, company. That could be very good for Nikola, too, uh, despite how much of a uh, Potemkin village that stock is. Um, if government throws enough money at Nikola through tax incentives and tax breaks and subsidies, Nikola mm-hmm. could become a real company. In yeah. the same way, Tesla has sort of become a real company, despite all the fraud, all the, the machinations, the Potemkin village. Um, there's enough money in the system now they could become a real company. And so you can see a lot of electric car stocks just go up simply because right. tax incentives and subsidies for electric cars are coming back into full force. And because uh, even his transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg, yeah. one of the big things that he's been speaking about is electric cars. Yeah. And so I think, like I said, three months ago, I would have said not in the question. Now I think they're very much in the question. Yeah. So I think more of a coin toss that those could be coming back. Yeah. And if I could, um, you know, something I would think about for, uh, you know, everyone that's listening is like, you know, when, when I hear something like that, I immediately think, okay, that's a great idea, but like, I want to go and I'll go start looking through all the clean energy stocks and all mm-hmm. the a great place to start is just the clean energy ETFs. Um, there's like four or five uh, major ones. And I would just start going through and then, what you do is you start looking for companies that have the highest sensitivity to that thesis. So there's been a lot of clean energy stocks that have made better returns this in 2020 than Tesla has. That's not to, I mean, I mean, like without a doubt, I mean, just, just go start looking through them. Uh, I mean, some of them are up just massively. Clean energy ETS have done very well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I don't want to speak for the exact numbers cause I don't, I don't have them in front of me, but, I mean, almost every other sector. I mean, I, I, I mean, most of them outperformed tech in 2020, you know? Um, so there's, there's definitely been upside there. And I, I think, you know, going through those and getting an idea and then developing it more with, okay, capital flows and other stuff. I mean, you know, any, anything that, that you're, you're looking through on those level, I know even a lot of them have been, have been, um, Based, based on some things, you know, sold short, or they have a large section of the float sold short. And if you start, I mean, you know, uh, Weston did a post the other day, and I'm pretty sure the, the or today, the short squeeze he was talking about, I'm pretty sure that was for a clean energy company. And so it's just a great example of, yeah, that's a great thesis, like big picture. But I, I think going, narrowing it down, identifying sensitivity, and then you know, sizing a trade, putting it on, deciding, you know, if you're going to do a pair trade or just buy some options or, you know, you know, define your timeline. Right. And I think timeline is something good to think about right now because um, coming into 2020, uh, I don't know if we can talk about this a little bit, but a lot of the things I see, I think on, on, on a whole, I'm pretty bearish just with the majority of stuff. Um, I think there's a lot of underlying stuff that's really bad and that I, you know, I understand that 
the market's trading on, on capital flows and stuff like that. And so I'm just breaking that down because if I, if I think there's downside in the market right now within the next couple months, I want to be able to time that or work that into a thesis I have with putting on a clean energy trade, which can overlap with maybe like, you know, more stimulus or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's kind of a good clarification just for that. As you bring that idea to like an actual trade. So there are three things I want to hit there because that brings up a couple of ideas. Yeah. Um, we could talk about, I'm going to talk about clean energy first. Then we're going to talk about what markets could look like three to six months from now. Yeah. And then we could talk about demographics. Okay. Um, so for clean energy, if Trump had won, clean energy is overvalued. I think there very likely would have been a correction. Could you say that again? Sorry. If Trump had won, clean oh. energy was very likely overvalued. Sure. Um, but if Biden won, clean energy would have been undervalued. Sure. And so in this current environment, clean energy could, could go up significantly more than it did last year. Because a yep. lot of what the clean energy was rising on last year was the very large focus from the European stimulus on renewables. And in fact, you're getting a lot of noise about a renewable stimulus in the United Kingdom and a lot of the, the propaganda, because it is mm -hmm. propaganda from China being big on renewables. Yeah. Even though I think the Chinese narrative is a bit less true, yeah. the European and UK one were very true. Yeah. And they're likely going to commit money to those things. And so the market was going up based on those things and that at least some of it was possibly that Biden might win. Um, but now that a green stimulus, green tax credits are all very much in the fold now, um, green energy could be significantly undervalued even compared to last year, despite it going up a ton. Right. Um, so markets going forward three to six months, nine months time frame. Yeah. Um, in general, I, I'm like, you know, very bearish. Yeah. Uh, but what I've started to realize is that um, macro frameworks are traditionally five to 10 year time horizons. Right. Um, I think Ralph talked about his bond thesis for four years before it started to pan out. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I'm beginning to realize very quickly, and this is something I talked with you privately in December, is that macro timeframes have shrunk considerably from five to 10 years to like five to 10 days. Sure. And that whatever the headline is or what machinations are occurring in the background are more important to stocks now because they're more volatile. Sure. And so what I said to you concerning this election that happened yesterday is that if Democrats win both seats, I think markets could go higher. Yep. Um, over the long term, not just the short term. Sure. And a lot of that has to do with more stimulus in the system. I think regulations are going to come back but not in full force because it's, it's, it's contractionary. Yeah. And Democrats, like most political parties, want to stay in power. And the last thing Democrats want to do is cause a recession. They want a good recovery so they can run on a recovery in 2022 and 2024. Right. So they're not going to push for tax increases. They're not going to push for massive deployment of new regulations. There's still going to be new regulations because yeah. Democrats always do that, but you're not going to see new deal level and new regulations and more executive branch branches to handle all these new machinations. Sure. Um, so I think what people can count on is more money in the system. I think that's yeah. a guarantee at this point. Yeah. And so I think that's very bearish dollar. I think the dollar is likely to go lower. Sure. And I think the, the curve for U.S. Treasuries is going to steepen. Uh, we saw the 10-year hit 1% for the first time in a while yesterday. Sure. 
on the Georgia Senate news. And I think it could go higher. Um, what could that mean? I think the Fed might intervene more, push more money into the system. Yeah. And I, I, I think markets could go higher. Yeah. Despite the fundamentals being still very trash. Well, I will, I will say this, you know, I, I think, uh, there's this huge, you know, pressure going both ways with supply and demand. And I think, you know, Mike Green did a great interview the other day talking about the fundamentals behind a lot of stuff with oil, commodities, uh, uh, the ags especially, and copper and why the prices exactly have gone up. And he was kind of talking about how some of the fundamentals aren't there as much uh, because of the supply and demand dynamic. And if, if you guys want to go watch that video, it's on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. But what I would, I would say is, you know, here's the thing, even, even today, you know, treasuries, uh, you know, sold off a bit, uh, you know, we had a you know, pretty, pretty significant um, uh, move up in, um, in uh, interest rates. But, uh, and I'm, I'm totally cool with that. I, you know, I didn't go, sh you know, shorting anything or anything like that. But I'm looking for fundamental actually movement as well with that. So like when I look at the move index, the move index barely moved in proportion to the move that the you know interest rates went up with. So mm -hmm. like when I'm looking at things to put a trade on, I'm also looking at, you know, it's like, look at some of the ag agricultural stuff, look at oil and look at, you know, copper now and look at, you know, the long end of the curve, the futures on them. When you look at the commitment of trader reports, there's a pretty big spread between the way that the commercial traders are positioned and the way that, you know, the large traders are positioned and kind of the whole, you know, smart money, dumb money, um, yeah. kind of thing. And, and I, the green thing on oil was, I think, spot on because the Saudis announced yesterday they're cutting production Yeah, on bearer sentiment. And I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right for most of the world, but not the United States. Okay. Because I think the lockdown, like, like I've mentioned in our last conversation, uh, the lockdowns in this country have been applied inconsistently. Mm -hmm. And so you have like three categories, states that enforce lockdowns with yeah. police and authority very strong authority. The second, people who claim their states are locked down but don't enforce it. And then the third one, sure. no lockdowns, no enforcement. Right. And about three quarters of the country are at least either not enforcing their lockdowns yeah. or don't have lockdowns. Yeah. And then two fifths of the country have enforced lockdowns. And as a result, you're gonna have disproportionate economic um, performance. Right. Most of Europe, enforced lockdown, if not sure. all of Europe enforced lockdown. The UK just went into lockdown again. Yep. Um, I think Africa is set to go into another sleigh of lockdowns in Asia. It, China is locking down some of its cities again. Mm -hmm. It's very quiet and they're doing a very good job covering, uh, like not make it very public, but it's happening. Um, I think Saudi is right to start cutting production. Yeah. The problem is that the United States has its own oil. The Canadians provide us with oil and so do the Mexicans. And so it's so a closed market for us. Yeah. I mean, I, here's where I would kind of push back a little bit and I, or I don't disagree with, with everything yeah. you're saying, but what I would point to as a variable to consider for the actual price action of oil is when we look at the, the amount, like if we go to retail sales and we look at the amount of uh, sales that are being made just for like gasoline stations, still down year to date, flat, not upward momentum. And then also when we look at the amount of flights that are happening, and also mm -hmm. the cancellation for flights in the United States. I mean, what you said with, you know, lockdowns in other countries, I mean, flights, flight cancellations are going up and the amount of flights that are happening are still either flat or they're going down. 
In the United States, they're just flat. So, I mean, year to date, uh, sorry, not year to date, uh, you know, 2020. I'm not um, alive anymore, dude. And to, I know. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, for the past year, since all the COVID stuff started, you know, the, you know, flights went down, they came back just a little bit and they've been just going flat. Yeah. And those are, those are two of the major things that we're going to have as impacting oil. Uh, so, you know, not to say that, you know, I know industrial production has picked up a lot. You know, we have a, a lot of strength there in comparison mm-hmm. to services and stuff like that. So I think you definitely have some support in that sense. But I, I think a lot of the data doesn't really, um, it's not showing this fundamental strength behind a lot of these commodity prices um, just shooting to all time highs. And I think the dollar weakness has, has helped it, has helped a lot of those going up, but it seems like a lot of them are supply side issues as opposed to like fundamental strength really coming oh. to bring in a, a bull market. Oh, there's no doubt. Um, but here's the thing. Cheap oil is a stimulus for American consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people realize that airlines kind of suck. And so a lot of the reason why people aren't flying anymore is because of that. Sure. Um, because driving, I think, has remained pretty constant, even if it's down a little bit. Um, sure. If you make gas cheaper, people are going to go out and start driving more. Um, industrials are a bit of a lagging indicator, mostly because a lot of them are just producing to fill up inventory again. And so, cause a lot of the inventory was depleted last year when most of the factories were shut down. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, new orders are up for, I mean, when, when the, you know, the ISM came out the other day, mm-hmm. I mean, new orders are up for that. Uh, you know, inventories are kind of uh, uh, coming back up for that as well. Um, I mean, I, I, I think industrial production, like the industrial production, you know, put up by the Fed is kind of lags by a month or so. Yeah. Uh, or maybe like two months or something like that. But the ISM seems like, I don't know, pretty decent. Do you, do you mean just in relation to oil? In general, I think, I think services are more likely to reflect what's happening now and industrials are a couple months behind. Because industrials aren't just trying to meet demand now, they're trying to fix the inventory problem. And one of the uh, things that was- Sure, no, that's, that's fair, that's fair. Um, yeah. But- the thing is, too, markets aren't, aren't, aren't necessarily moving because they expect a big growth. Right. They're like, which market's going to be better than the other one that's falling? Right. Sort of like the whole neighborhood's on fire. Which house is the only one that only has its windows out, windows blown out, but it's not on fire? Right. And that, that world, the U.S. is that market. Mm-hmm. And so I think markets could go up higher in the United States, even though if the fundamentals are trash. Sure. Um, I think markets in Europe are going to eventually correct. Um, but that sort of flies in the face of everything because the Euro keeps going up. Um, but the third thing I want to talk about is that in general, I don't think this can go on forever. Um, I think markets, markets going up. Yeah. I think there's probably going to be a correction. If markets go up at least for the next two years, I think that's possible. Sure. Uh, but beyond 2023 and 2024, I think it gets a lot harder Mm -hmm. as, more of the baby boomers retire. Right. Um, the first baby boomer officially applied for social security to start receiving benefits in 2018. Um, most baby boomers will, a majority of them would ha- will have tapped into social security right. by 2023 and 2024. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the money you see in the system right now is there because uh, baby boomers are still trying to get every last penny they can out of the system. So they're putting money into risky things like 
Bitcoin, into emerging markets, into commodities, into real estate, into things that don't make sense right now. But because there's enough money in the system, they're just going to everything, trying to get as much yield as they can in the short term. Um, I think in 2023, you could start to see a downtrend. You can start seeing interest rates start to rise again and the yield curve steepening because money is going to start being scarce again. Uh, how you apply capital is going to start mattering again. I think you're muted. I can't hear you, dude. Now I can hear you. Yeah, Bluetooth right. on Windows is not very, very good. Yeah. Now I got you. You're good. All right, cool. We're good. Um, yeah, I the the demographic thing is really interesting. When when we see a lot of the baby boomers begin to draw on that a lot more, uh, on on that amount of uh, capital through Social Security and selling assets to be able to fund their retirement. What do you, what do you think happens with interest rates? Cause I see this dilemma going forward where, you know, the U S government has to fund these really large expenditures to pay social security yeah. and healthcare. And they have to issue debt to do that. They don't have that money just lying around. And I mean, the, the, the out, I mean, the deficit is huge, especially as you go out even more. Yeah. Do you, do you think we have interest rates just lower during that time? Or you said you think the, the yield curve steepens? I think the yield curve steepens. Okay, um, why, why is that? And I think a lot. Of, so you start to hit some pretty um, undeniable realities there. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those things is that people forget the United States government practiced austerity between 2010 through 2016. It's called mm -hmm. the sequester this sort of suicide gambit that Republicans and Democrats could come to a budget agreement by 2011 or 2012. And that if they didn't, every branch of government would take a haircut of 15 to 20% of their budget. It's yeah. why the deficit shrank under Obama, despite a lot of the massive stimulus spending in his first four years. Um, I think you're likely going to see something similar again. I think the government will start practicing austerity. Um, I don't think MMT is in the is as in the cards as people want to believe. Right. Um, I think so. Here's the thing with MMT. Um, MMT, as I conceptualize it, is five six trillion dollar budgets every year. Sure. Even if re revenues are two or three trillion dollars, I think the last right. revenue was three point eight four point two trillion dollars tax revenue, right. which is is huge. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now is just Keynesian, Keynesian stimulus yeah. on crack. Totally. I don't think it's MMT. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. it, M, M, MMT has become this sort of cliche term and I hate cliche terms. Yeah. Um, you're not going to see the kind of spending that takes MMT to get off the ground because there's just no political will for it. Uh, there are some loud right. voices that get in the media that like MMT. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Do I think large stimuluses are still in the books? Absolutely. But that's just yeah. Keynesianism. That's, that's nothing new. 
we're all pretty familiar with what that does to the system. Yeah. Um, but at some point you're going to have, you're going to start seeing serious conversations in 2023 and 2024 about reforming social security uh, and recreating the social contract for many of America's welfare programs. Wouldn't that cause um, like Medicare is probably going to be overhauled. Here's Especially social security, social security. I mean, just that, I mean, forget about the healthcare. I mean, don't, not, don't forget about healthcare, but like. Oh, no doubt. Uh, but people forget that during Reagan, Ronald Reagan's term, the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and he got social security reform through. Hmm. He didn't want to reform social security. No one did. Um, but it became such a huge problem and that the, the social security trust fund was going to break to bust the fund that they basically passed not only a small tax increase to bring more money into the, the trust fund, but they extended, uh, they added a phasing period for a larger age to eligibility. Hmm. And I think that makes sense. People are living longer. People are working longer. You shouldn't be tapping your benefits earlier. Right. So I think there's a real possibility that you start seeing age increases in eligibility for social security in order to prolong. Uh, because here's the thing. People could either get some of their benefits or get none of them. That's what's yeah. going to come down to. You got to yeah. tell people like, hey, we could either print a ton of money, yeah, not be able to pay for it. Inflation happens and that's all wiped out. You know payments essentially. Or you wait a little longer to get them and you might see some of it. Yeah. Some or none. That's, that's the conversation that's going to happen in the next couple of years. Yeah. I think it's very likely that whoever is president in 2024 through 2028 is going to have to deal with that. Yeah. It's going to be a real problem. And I think austerity is going to come back in full force. Austerity has been sort of cast aside because it was so unpopular in Europe and the United Kingdom. Right. Um, but arguably they practiced austerity at the wrong time. Yeah. The demographics were still okay. They could still have consumption-based growth. Yeah. For them, that's not going to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see a lot of corrections happening in Europe. That conversation is going to start in the next two years. But for the United States, we're a bit behind the curve. Yeah. So I think austerity is a real possibility. Yeah. And people like to ignore that because they're like, oh, there's no way they're going to do it. We've done it already. Yeah. And we've seen what Congress is willing to do. And if you watch some of these videos on YouTube, like I think Roll Call is this YouTube channel that just shows like all the unflattering moments for all these congressmen and senators. They're just like us. They're, they're, they're not the brightest people on the planet. Like they're, they're not super geniuses, okay? Congress is gonna do stuff that's gonna be broadly unpopular. Yeah. That's what Congress is there to do. And I think, it, so like I said, the conversation around social security, Medicare, Medicaid is that you could either get some of your benefits or you get none. Yeah. Because the alternative is so bad not only do you wipe out your savings, but you wipe out your children's too. Yeah. And the government has done this before. The government has uh, increased the age of eligibility, I think five times in the past five decades. They've increased taxes for social security, for payroll taxes to fund it. There is a tried and tested system for reforming social security. Yeah. It's just all about timing. And Congress doesn't do stuff until it's the very last moment. Yeah. So do you think... Do you think they, because one of the main arguments for the inflation camp is that we're going to have all of these different expenditures and need 
to make, you know, to expand the deficit and all this different stuff, huge government spending. And that's what's going to, you know, cause inflation. That's, that's why we're going to like, that's one of the main reasons we have really strong inflation over the next 10 years. Yeah. Do you, do you see that at all? Or do you see that from another source or? or I think it's, I think the next 10 years are going to be incredibly deflationary. Okay. Um, and, and that's mostly because the, the capital crunch that's going to happen in the next couple of years. We're going to see it more in the next couple of years that we've seen it recently. Yeah. Um, I think you could see real inflation in 2030. Sure. Because, um, and this is something I talked to with Raul recently, because I'm working with him to write some stuff for Global Macro Investor. Mm-hmm. Well, I was graciously asked, I'm a guest writer. Um, but we were talking about demographics in France, and he's just like, kind of looks like a rectangle. Because just the the amount of old people essentially is equal to the amount of young people. Hmm. And so, I mean, that's not great for a capital environment because that basically means there's going to be a one-to-one ratio of money going into the system, going out of the system. Yeah. And so that's going to create some capital tightening, but not much. Yeah. The United States is just like that. We have a large, the millennials are just as big of a population group as the baby boomers. Yeah. And so- you're going to see some considerable cap- capital tightening sure. in this decade. But once most of the uh, baby boomers move in with their kids and start sharing their wealth, or most of the baby boomers die off and their kids inherit their wealth, in 2030, you could start seeing inflation start to pick up again as that money that's been held in savings accounts, in uh, savings bonds, hmm. treasuries, or just long-term equities, you could actually see some of that start to get liquidated and pushed into the system. Right. But a lot of the world isn't going to experience that. Like most of Europe, the amount of elderly retirees outnumbers the amount of young workers by two to one or four to one. Yeah. And so you're going to see considerable capital tightening Yeah. in most of Europe. And they're going to be fleeing for safe assets to maintain wealth right. or just preserve their wealth. Yeah. And what's going to be the most common um, safe asset out there? U.S. Treasuries. And so you could either buy really shitty euro bonds, which have like virtually no guarantee. I think the euro is going to experience a crisis in the next five years where the needs of the South to inflate their currency to get rid of their debts going to become more important. Yeah. And the North's not going to want to do that because they have tons of money. Yeah. And so I think there's probably going to be a split in the euro. And so you either going to want, if you hold euros, you're going to worry about the euro's future or you can hold dollars where, you know, like they're not doing great, but they're doing better than us. So we're going to hold it. Right. And so even if they, people don't reform social security as much as they need to, there's still enough demand for us bonds abroad, even domestically to where inflation may not pick up as much as people think it will. Right. Um, I'm not saying it's out of the question. I'm never going to say anything's out of the question because my reputation depends on my flexibility. So (laughs) if I say something's going to happen, I could very well be wrong. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, this tension, going back to what you said about shorter term uh, timeframes, I'm a little agnostic to short term, long term. Um, I don't really, I don't really think about things in short term, long term. Uh, I think about things a little bit differently. Uh, But I think the whole idea of like this long term macro view it's incredibly helpful when you're like thinking about like, you know, the tailwinds and stuff like that. But um, it's really, 
you know, timing it and getting the position on the right way, you know, depending on your time preference and stuff like that is much harder. You know, I think it's interesting. I, I love uh, Jim Rogers, who is just kind of like the, you know, one of the old OG macro guys who just, he just knows so much about everything, but he, he's just like, hey, I suck at timing. So he literally just puts on a position and just doesn't worry about it for several years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, granted, he's really good at what he does, but it's, it's interesting how today, you know, it's almost impossible to like run money and have a negative carry or run money and be down 10% on the quarter when the S&P is up, you know, 20% or stuff like that. Um, and, you know, you, there, the volatility profile is very different. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I get it. There's, there's a certain amount of vol that you need to be able to take in a portfolio and stuff like that. Um, and you need to manage that downside risk. But I think the world is changing at a faster rate. And so like those longer term macro views, um, I don't know. Do you think, do you think it's easier for them to get overturned now? So I, I've even said this in interviews where people ask me, like, what do you think about long-term planning? Um, I think everything that's within arm's reach of you is yeah. within your control. You could plan that. You can war plan that out. You can game out theories. You could do everything you want with that with a certain degree of guarantee that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Anything that is beyond your arm's reach, out of your control. You should not plan around that. So I think on a time frame scale, I think the safest you can guarantee an outcome is probably three to four weeks. But even then, I think it's a coin toss. Beyond one month of planning, it's a coin toss, whether you're going to be right or wrong. I think within one or two weeks, you can guarantee it's going to happen. Um, if you start making one to 10-year timeframes, it's guesswork. You're just having fun. Yeah. Um, you're a little kid with crayons drawing on a map of the world. Sure. Could things happen? The yeah. way you, you said they could? Absolutely. Could they go completely in the opposite direction and make you look like a fool? Absolutely. Sure. Um, some of these things like demographics are a bit more solid because they're, they're a known quantity. It's a field of statistics that's very well thought out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the consequences of demographics are known. Yeah. So that's probably one of the few exceptions where that is technically within your arm's reach and you could plan around that. Sure. Um, but once you start talking about like individual people, yeah. like what is Christine Lagarde going to do about X? What is um, Jay Powell going to do something about X? I think one to two weeks, you could probably predict them, but beyond that, you can't. Yeah. Um, what is the government going to do about social security? I think you can only base predictions on that. Like I've been doing based on past history mm-hmm. and the fact that the institutions and the, the communication channels for that to happen exist. Yeah. And so if you have historical patterns and you have demographics, you can make long-term projections into a coin toss. Sure. The problem is is that half the time you're going to be right, half the time you're going to be wrong. Right. Um, I think it's more likely than not that the social security thing is likely going to happen. They're going to have to reform it. Yeah. Um, Maybe they don't. Yeah. They might just choose the inflation route. Mm -hmm. Um, But Again, Congress has stared down the train yeah. multiple times and jumped off the rails. Right. 
And even when they've shut down the government, um, they jump off the rails within 30 yeah. days and everything returns to normal. Um, when the fiscal cliff was going to happen where America was going to default on its debt, they jumped off the rails. Yeah. And Congress is filled with some of the dumbest people on the planet. No. But they're not suicidal. No, come on. They're not suicidal. So, <laughs> I mean, some of them are, but they're, again, I think macro is a good way to make the foggy environment that is predicting the future a little less murky. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you increase your ability to see by maybe an extra foot. Well, every, yeah. like everything else in front of you is a bit still very murky. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not 100% sure I would totally buy into maybe that description of it. I think um, I think getting a lot of the main big picture things right is incredibly helpful. And I don't know, I, I mean, sometimes I trade on a, you know, one to three week time frame. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I don't. Uh, I, again, I kind of think about the whole time time frame thing a little bit differently, but I think if you, I think okay, and and I say this from an industry perspective, so many people are focused on quarter to quarter short term stuff, and I think there is an arbitrage between the people who can take some volatility, have a longer term perspective, and you know, and I'm just saying eighteen months, you know a year to 18 months. Uh, you know, I, I think if you can take a little bit longer time horizon, mm-hmm. you have an edge over those people who have to make sure that they're doing their, you know, they have their nice performance numbers every quarter mm-hmm. and every six months. Uh, I like, I'm not saying it's totally valueless. I just think totally in, in general, a lot of it's conjecture. Sure. And so conjecture could be right or wrong. Sure. Um, so like, you go back to the, the videos we did early on last year about this race. Yeah. Um, look how quickly that changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, it wasn't blue wave, but it was blue tide. Totally. And so what should have been an easy win for Republicans then become a very, very easy loss for them at the same time within yeah. not even a week. I mean, I was texting you like the entire weekend and saying like, oh my God, they actually... Yeah did this and now the narrative has changed yeah now democrats are likely to win and if i were to call it i say both democrats win totally and so i think because i think 2020 the 2020s will be the the decade of short-term macro you're playing it out by month by month you have this long-term you have a long-term thesis you have a long-term thesis but it depends more on month to month than it ever did before well, I think I think you could trade around a position month to month, but I don't. In uh, you know, I'm not a macro guy, so I have literally no clue. Uh, yeah. Or not that I'm not a macro guy, but um, I don't have the experience as one. So maybe we should talk to Hugh Henry. But uh, uh, that guy probably some say some like esoteric saying that would like. He'd probably try to sell you CBD hair oil. <laughs> you look, like, take it, man. You just oh take Lord. It. Come on. Um, oh, I will say, uh, you know, when, um, so, uh, what was the, what were the videos that D Smith did on real vision world on a brink or something like that? World on the brink. Yeah. Uh, I thought those were helpful. And I think there's one principle that I really took away and also 
that was also touched, same principles touched upon on the book uh, Range by David Epstein, which was when I talked, when I talked to um, D. Smith, when I talked to him, he, he suggested this book. And so that's why I started reading it. But um, I think the reason, the one principle I was taking away is the rate at which the world is changing is increasing. And the dynamics that currently exist are making the world more complex and less predictable. Yep. And so that, that shorter time horizon, I understand it. You know, I, I see, you know, the reason why. And mm -hmm. I think it goes into a lot of how to make decisions with non-predictive uh, principles and non-predictive strategies where you're not trying to predict the future, which we all know that we can't do, but you're still coming up with a system that you can correctly exploit the, the different inefficiencies and disequilibriums that exist. No doubt. So I, I think, I think that really connects in with, with the idea because it's, it's so true. Like, uh, you know, you read stuff so fast and it's, they're not, they're all big picture things. They're all big, huge things that have a big impact and they're not just like small news stories here and there. Mm -hmm. So like, I, again, I'm going to say the decade, this decade is going to be the year, the decade of short-term macro. Mm -hmm. uh, you could have big long-term theses. I'm not saying you can't. Sure. Um, but what will make or break those theses is if you hit all the right marks month to month to month. Yeah. And that a lot of your predictions that you make, or at least some of your theses that you're making for the long term, hit probably 75% of the points you look for month to month. Sure. If you see a deviation in one of those months, it has a chance to go off the rails. Yeah. Um, this whole Brexit thing, too. I thought there were two outcomes. Yeah. Hard Brexit or a big EU deal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I didn't keep in, into consideration is that they take the third road, which is that you take all the worst aspects from the two deals I've already laid out and turn them into a compromise deal. Yeah. That's what the UK did. It, it's a horrible deal. Um, but because some of the things I didn't pick up on and I wasn't open to, like the third thing I option I wasn't open to because I didn't think it was a real possibility. And that was wrong for me to do. Um, but in general, it, it's going to be more month to month. Sure. So not to say that along, like macro's dead, it's not. But think about how stable the world has been the past four decades since the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What has happened that's been major besides 9-11? At least from the American point of view. Nothing. Uh, just like the global financial crisis, but. But even then, think how tranquil it was after 2010 when some of that got sort of kicked out of the system and the Europeans went there through their thing for two years. Yeah. You're going to have at least a decade or two of chaos. Every reaction has an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. So I think the next decade is going to be pure chaos. And I think 2020 kind of gave everyone that rude wake up call. Totally. Well, and I, I think the amount of debt and leverage in the system is going to, and complexity in the system is going to, you know, take those moves and increase the impact of them. You know, I think, I think, you know, everything in 2008, no problems were really solved. The can was just kicked down the road. And, you know, there were, that's, there were a lot of major issues that were inherent in the system 
and the can was kicked down the road. And, you know, it's, it's a distortion of time because you're just delaying the inevitable. And so I, I think there's going to be a lot more, whether it's this decade or the next or however they're going to end up doing it. I mean, even, even with March, I mean, a lot of the stuff, what do they do? They kicked the can down the road, right? With the whole COVID thing. Yeah, they took a huge shock, but they also kicked a lot down the road. I think that's yes, that's more yes and no than it is definitive one way. Okay. I think for the United States, I think a lot of the problems that caused 2008 were remedied. That's probably a very unpopular thing to say, but I think that's true. Okay. Um, I think even when the repo market sort of seized up on itself in 2019, a lot of people weren't concerned about the banks. They were concerned about everything else that surrounded the banks. Right. Um, I think with the exception of maybe City and Wells Fargo, I think most of the banks are very well capitalized. And what caused the repo market to sort of choke on itself is the, the Basel III rules that required more of the banks to hold on to more of their money. So that the system sort of sure. seized up because most of the money in the system was now liquid. Yeah. Um, so it, the system may have been too reformed in that sense. Sure. Okay. Um, I think the Europeans definitely kicked the can down the road. And I think they're still paying the price for that. Yeah. Um, the U.S. has definitely kicked the can down the road in some places, but not in most areas. I think that's more of a minority case for most Americans. Really? Um, like the inflation thing. Um, so if the government was going to shut down the economy, they at least had to have enough money to fill the gap between where growth was going to eventually land once it's stabilized. Sure. So after Q2, Q2's massive decline government was going to have to basically provide a third of the, the economy yeah, and put money to the system to match that. I think at the end of the day, they put it in maybe a quarter yeah. of what the, of the total economy and probably 75% of what they needed to do. Yeah. And so, and that reflected in Q3 when growth rebounded to, I think not probably end of 2018 GDP rather than end of 2019 GDP. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be classified as solving the problem, but also kicking the can down the road because if the economy doesn't reopen after that, then it becomes kicking the can down the road because then they just have to keep filling the hole with more money. Yeah. And the I problem mean, is, is that the economy has been so unevenly opened that for some states, they didn't kick the can down the road. And so they're fine now. Sure. But for those states that are still locked down and didn't take advantage of the opportunity to reopen, despite the risk of COVID and everything they kick the can down the road and they're going to pay for it. Yeah. And so I, you have to take it case by case and then you have to see whether all those case by cases add up to where it can be the entire thesis, even sure. if a minority doesn't follow the case. Sure. I think Europe did that. Mm-hmm. I think Europe's in serious trouble. It doesn't look yeah. like that now, but I think a lot of the same problems are still there and they're going to be there forever. Yeah. Um, a lot of the problems in the United States are still there, but they're not the majority anymore. Okay. I think the longer the shutdowns continue, I think then you have the chance that it could morph into a majority of the problem. Okay. Uh, because businesses can't keep doing this. The people can't keep doing this. Um, you could say a lot of the riots and a lot of the instability that's happened just even the past couple of days is a reflection of the lockdowns. Sure. People are tired of staying in their homes. People want to get back to work. There's a determination to return to normalcy yeah for sure and if they don't get that then i think the problems will multiply yeah um but if they do get that i think everything returns back to normal yeah 
I think people are, would, would be in general surprised by that. Yeah. Um, again, what the market is going to look for is the house that only has its windows blown out. Sure. Well, the rest of the world is on fire. Yeah. And I think America is going to remain that even if things look bad here, it's just like, okay, it's shitty here, but my neighbor's house is burning down. And at least I have a house. So what do you, what do you maybe come a couple of final thoughts, but what do you think? Uh, are, are you thinking at least on a intermediate term basis, what, like long US, short Euro? Uh, sorry, um, uh, like stocks, stock index uh, indices, uh, not, not, the, not the currency pair. Long commodities and long, and probably long equities. Okay. Um, For what, what time frame? I think that largely depends. Um, I think the small stimulus will allow markets to keep defying gravity, at yeah. least through February. Um, okay. But if, there are serious discussions about a $1.5, $2 trillion stimulus starting in February and looking very serious in March, mm-hmm. then markets could defy gravity for an extra month, even if there's no money in the system. Sure. Um, if that stimulus goes through 1.5 to 2.5 in size, to, to 1.5, 2.5 trillion in size, I think you could have markets that are generally positive for the rest of the year. And if yeah. there's large infrastructure, then commodities will go up too. Yeah. And industrials we talked about. Uh, industrials will go up. Industrials. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely, without a doubt, think there's, there's upside in, in trading the, the stimulus mm-hmm. and, and that stuff that's coming. Um, I've sat on the sidelines for several different things and then had, you know, maybe short-term trades here and there. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because I think there's a lot of, I think things are really fragile right now. And I think it takes a very little exogenous event to really mess things up. So Um, here's what I'd say. If Tesla takes a big hit, then I think everyone should be bearish. Sure. Okay. I think if, yeah, honestly, because think about it. Tesla just announced that it almost hit its goal of 500,000 cars produced a year. Yeah. The stock went up like 5%. Yeah. Ford produces and sells 1 million F-150s every year. And that's just one car from one car company. Sure. Sells double what Tesla did in one year. Yeah. Tesla's fundamentals don't make sense. Yeah. They continue to defy gravity. Yeah. As long as Tesla continues to defy gravity, the rest of the market can too. Sure. That's good. As soon point. as Tesla starts to be starts to show that it can be held down by gravity, I think people should start probably taking money off the table. Totally. Well, I think that's uh, the, I mean, I have a list of stocks that I look at every day and they're kind of those uh, more like, you know, the vanity stocks or, you know, stuff like that, where there's, you know, a lot of speculation in them. Yeah. And I really think that, you know, they provide a really helpful metric for where things are. Uh, you know, with that amount of speculation. I will say too, uh, I know you mentioned this at the beginning, we can kind of end with this. Um, I'm interested to see how Bitcoin acts when we have another sell-off. And I'm not talking about like a five or 10% when, you know, when the market is, you know, you know, when we have another like liquidity event like March, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not out of the question at all. 
when we have another event like that, how is Bitcoin going to react? And I think, I think that'll be really, really key because, you know, we've seen Bitcoin go up a lot. Uh, I'd like to see it tested, you know, and don't get me wrong. Everyone wants Bitcoin to go up. It's all good, but it'll be interesting to see how it acts under that kind of pressure. I just, I think Bitcoin goes up the rest of the year, honestly. Yeah. Um, it, every time, it, like Twitter is also a good resource to use. Like if you type in like hashtag stimmy, which is like the short slang term for stimulus now, it, most of the chatter on Twitter is putting the money into crypto. Yeah. I think if you get $2,000 checks and you start getting it, all this stimulus money in the system, it's going to go into crypto. Yeah. Or it, probably the two big ones, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Bitcoin yeah. is the reserve asset. Um. I think gold can go up in this environment, but won't go up as aggressively as Bitcoin. Yeah. I think I have a lot of misgivings about Bitcoin. Um, sure. I don't think that's a secret to anyone. Um, but the markets have moved against me and the narrative has too. I think Bitcoin, whether I like it or not, is a reserve asset for many people now. And sure. I think a lot of it's also very speculative. Yeah. Um, but as long as people feel like they could put money to Bitcoin and it will remain flat or go up, yeah. Money will keep flowing into it. Totally. And so even though I think a lot of us are like, yeah, it should correct at some point. And every once in a while it does, it corrects like 20%, 30%. But then it goes up 50. And so I think you'll keep seeing the seesawing up and down for the rest of the year, but it'd still be positive. Yeah. Um, I think when 2023, 2024 started coming around, you could start to see things sell off a bit. Um, but as long as money keeps flowing into the system, things will go up. Hmm. Well, uh, I think we'll kind of end it on that and uh, definitely be interesting to see how things play out in Q1 of this year. And uh, I think we'll be doing another of these videos as uh, Biden gets elected or as he takes over the presidency and kind of the first moves he's making and then how we see stimulus going. Cause I think we'll see how markets are reacting to that. No doubt. And again, I want to make clear, um, yeah. I am a bear in general, um, <laughs> but right now I'm in a, in a bull costume. So. Yep. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I'm kind of a, or I am a bear right now and uh, we'll, we'll see what kind of uh, comes out of everything. So I'm, uh, I'm excited for 2021. I think there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to trade. So we'll see how it goes. No doubt. All right, John, until next time. Thanks for having me. All right, bye.